Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Welcome to the. It's uh, sixteen weeks. No, eight weeks. Sixteen eight weeks. sessions. Eighteen weeks. Eight weeks. Uh, this, this is COVID echo number sixteen. Yeah. So it's been, uh, uh, and in fact, this was. Uh, I think people that were on would probably say this was one of the best ones. Uh, again, it's hard. There's just been so. I was going to say we say that every single. I time, know, but, but there's been very few that were not up to amazing standards. This was another amazing set of talks. So yeah, the Sweet Sixteen Echo started with none other than the Commissioner of Health, Jan Malcolm, and she was a friendly, fun person to have on today. So it's just super sweet because we've met her before when she came to visit us in Little Falls with all of our drug stuff. So it kind of brought it a little full circle. And it's pretty cool. And the commissioner calls you Kurt and Heather. Like, we're all friends. Let's move on. <laughs> so so she really, uh, you know, I think, came right out and basically wanted to thank all of the providers. on. And we had over 300 people on today. And I think it was like 347. So it was a big crew. And... Uh, really for all the work that uh, we've all done uh, to really help slow and mitigate the COVID spread and the work and the time we've all put into this. Uh, some of us more than others, but everybody's been working hard. Yeah. And uh, did obviously point out the, the obvious that they are aware, obviously, that this curve is climbing and that there is this obvious felt um, need to, to balance the public health and the economy and really pointing at some health inequities and and making sure we focus at that, but also looking at the hot spots and trying to really problem solve, I guess, the, the follow-ups, the tracings, and testing, testing, testing. I'd like to think that thinking out of the box at this point is helpful, Dr. Bell. The box. Yep, think thinking out of the box. Outside the box. Be a problem this. solver is what she's saying. Exactly. So, and how cool was it last weekend? The National Guard actually went to six sites throughout Minnesota, and 10,000 people got tested. They, I like how they chose a, a holiday weekend. And they said they chose a holiday weekend on purpose because labs wouldn't be as overwhelmed. They were only anticipating roughly 6,000, and they had 10,000 people show up. So I, Yeah, and I think that's going to help us a lot with the prevalence and, and uh, really what's going on in our state. Right. And I think that, again, you know, I think it's roughly 80% of these patients are nursing home patients. And I think there's people that want to say, well, yeah, but what percentage of just regular people are dying? It's low. I'm looking at these. These are all regular people. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're in a nursing home or any congregate living. I think that to look at them as any less of a loss is a poor choice. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, yes, 80% are long-term care in Minnesota right now, but their grandmas. But but there's also young people in Minnesota dying too. Yep. You know, and if if we don't crack down and say, well, it's okay, just don't go to a nursing home, young people are going to die too. But 
I don't know. I just, I think it's going to be interesting this week when those results all get resulted. Yeah. The big jump that so Minnesota. Right now, I just saw we are currently number 19 in the country for the most cases. Yeah. And I would just say and one last half. thing is just because it's a lot of nursing home patients does not mean it's okay. These are people's grandparents and uh, we need to look out for them as well. Okay. Anything else, Heather, with that? No, no, I just, I, we just want to thank, you know, MGH and obviously Commissioner Malcolm, who the, the comments we were getting in the chat today and the positive feedback that everyone just seems to really respect her and her position. I just, that was so cool to see. And it was just so awesome to have her there. And yeah, one of the chats said, and I quote, I could listen to her talk all day, unquote. That's a mic drop. But we're not going to end there. So we were actually asked by Dr. Kirby Clark, who is the head of the Minnesota Rural Physician Associate Program, the RPAP program at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And MetroPAP. And MetroPAP. Yes, it wasn't MetroPAP when I was there. There wasn't such a thing. I'm old. But anyway, he and his uh, colleague, Dr. Timothy Shacker, who is an infectious disease doctor and also the vice dean of research at the University of Minnesota Medical School, Talked, had him come on to really talk us up, to us about the natural history of COVID as well as testing and the ins and outs. And although a lot of this on the surface was review, I just think the way that he well, worded just some the of start, this, just the start was a little bit of a review, and uh, but it was it was kind of from a different angle. Ex- that's yeah, and that's what I was getting yeah. at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were taking too long. I was taking um, too but long. But I think Dr. Shacker, if he listens to this and we screw this up, how we explain this, just call us. We'll fix it. Kurt's Probably. number is. Actually, <laughs> actually, we can't fix it because we never edit. So, never edit. So let's get to the real meat of the of the talk here. So he had a, right out from the start, he had an interesting uh, little slide that showed the difference between the Illinois border counties and the Iowa border counties and how Iowa wasn't doing much, Iowa wasn't doing much as far as social distancing and their curve and, and cases just went up much faster. So what's up, Iowa? That was just a call out. <laughs> so really what that showed was the people that put in place some of these earlier rules actually had fewer cases and, and the spread was slower. Yeah. And this is actually directly from JAMA. He didn't make this up. JAMA may of 2020 actual published journal articles. So you know, he kind of compared it at least initially to to HIV and how the infection can take that three to seven days with no symptoms. And that back when the HIV thing started back in the 80s when Kurt was just getting into practice and I was just being born, they, uh, you know, you have all these people who didn't yet have symptoms, yet they were able to share this virus. And that's kind of what's happened um, with COVID. And that's that's kind of the big deal and why it's been so virulent and so easy to spread. Yeah. And of course, you talked about a lot of things that we've we've kind of heard before a little bit with the ACE2 receptors and how the virus binds and how, um, you know, the receptor receptor and entry genes are, are expressed by some of these cells uh, that we see in the human olfactory epithelium as well. And that's that whole, why can't we smell problem? So, oh, But how cool is the word sustentacular cell? Like It's spectacular. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Hold when he on, said that, I'm I like, need to do this. We, we need to like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish I could reach that button. Um, 
but yeah, I think that was really interesting. He talked a little bit about the kind of the clinical course, which again is nothing new for us, but really that symptom onset three days, uh, onset to hospitalization, usually around 8.5 days on average. And, and uh, really it's unknown how many are infected of these infected people require hospitalization because we don't know. The denominator. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's still up in the air. So of those hospitalized, of course, 15% uh, requiring ICU care and, and that whole ARDS, you know, roughly if it hits, it's a roughly 9.5 days. So, But I found what was really interesting is both what he just said with that symptom onset to hospitalization, eight and a half days and not ARDS, nine and a half days. And then Dr. Susie, who we'll get to, said the same thing. Yeah. Like they come in and they're like, okay. There's, and then they crash within... Yeah. No time. Hours. They suddenly they're fine, and next thing you know, they need ten liters of oxygen. So, so the risk factors. Ooh. Nothing that we haven't heard before, but really, he emphasized the obesity was a huge. It's kind of become, at least in our country, the number one risk factor. Yeah, I've been losing weight just because of this. You so yeah, older age to lose, old man. Yeah, older <laughs> older age. Speaking uh, of, you know, sixty nine versus fifty two. What if you're right in the middle? that yeah well yeah i'm more towards the bottom uh, but that whole hypertension and diabetes everybody knows these things heart disease so those were not new but interesting one of the things that that we've seen different things written about was this whole if you have tachypnea presentation or tachycardia presentation bad sign bad sign yeah i uh he had some really cool slides, which I wish we could visibly show you on this podcast, which of course we can't. But Just if hold them up. Hey, here, look. These Some of these are really pretty. I kind of want to use them as green screen backgrounds. Maybe we should do that in the next couple of days. That's a good idea, actually. I just threw that out there. But if you could Google what the the actual histopathology. So what do the pathology people look at under the microscope at lungs that had COVID versus a healthy lung. And oh my goodness, I didn't love pathology back in medical school, but this is like super cool to see. Yeah. So his slides were pretty, I mean, really dramatic what, what happens inside the lungs, uh, even early in disease when people start getting that shortness of breath. He talked a little bit about the shedding and how, you know, this is a lot of times from the oropharynx, even after they get symptoms that recover. Uh, and, of course, we are doing some oropharyngeal swabs now, too. So I think that shedding uh, at that time, you know, you're, you're, there is some likelihood that you can pick it up. Although, you know, a lot of the stuff I've seen showed that the, they weren't quite as accurate as the, uh, the nasopharyngeal. That's kind of what I've seen, too. But also, you know, when you're hospitalized, if you can get a BAL, so the bronchial swab or, you know, postmortem, they're getting lung biopsies. But he almost described this like syncytial thing that happens where these cells kind of fuse and then they slough off and then it progresses leading to this pneumonia and leading to this ARDS. It sounds really gross. I hate lung stuff, mucus yeah. stuff, but that's kind of what this sounds like to me. But that... I'm not a really mucus fan, but infectious virus they said was not in the stool. Although they're finding virus in the stool, the infectious stuff they're not finding in the stool. And incidentally, nicely, I guess there's no virus found in urine or blood at this point. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, and again, I think that that uh, you know we always need to remember too that as these even when people are developing the antibodies, that does not mean they're not shedding. So it's like even your your cat or your dog, even though the weather's nice out, they can still be shedding. That is a great analogy you just came up with right then and there. It's, but what if you have like a poodle and they don't shed? My mind is always working. 
So when we look at... Uh, you didn't answer my poodle question. No, we're moving on. So <laughs> anticoagulant treatment uh, is one of the things he talked about a little bit. And, you know, especially when we see these people and they have really high inflammatory markers, there's been a lot done uh, with uh, Lovenox. And he kind of touted the Lovenox for some of these patients. So... Well, just looking at the the death rates and people who were anticoagulated, as we've talked about this a lot too, and he showed that a lot of that on the his slides, this microemboli or the clots throughout throughout, um, and that people who get the more severe disease just it's almost like their immune system just like overdoes it, overdoes it, and the CD eight T cells just kind of crump out. And then there's some that obviously get this more cytokine storm where other of their immune cells just kind of take over. Yeah, the storm is never good. No. So uh, he talked a little bit about the infection pockets, and uh, they had some really cool slides from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, And, of course, Mayo has kind of been a clinical partner of ours. They've had some of their microbiologists on for us, and that's been amazing. Uh, But they have these models where they they get this data very quickly, and they they track where these hotspots are. And, of course, that's where we want to focus all of our activity. There you go. I don't even know where you are in the notes. I but. don't either. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but one thing he mentioned, speaking of Mayo, is that how they're using a little bit different testing um, than the University of Minnesota, where he obviously is. But really, their sensitivity is still both about that 87% specificity, so about that 100%, but that's more antibody testing. I think he said. No, I lost you. Yeah, no, I'm just all over the place. But you went way down the page. I there. did. So, bottom line, U of M and Mayo may be using slightly different PCR tests, both the envelope protein versus the spike protein to test. Both of the sensitivity and specificity of the PCR diagnostic test is going to vary depending on when you're doing the swabs, how you're doing the swabs but really not one's better than the other. But then when you come down to the antibody testing, which they do also differ in, they're both just as good when you're finding the antibodies. Yep. So send them to either place. Just get testing. You know, one of the things they've noticed with uh, patients as they move through their, you know, move through their disease is this whole situation with developing neutralizing antibodies. Uh, And some don't and some do. (laughs) And that's either good or bad. Low titers, and this is your antibody levels, is poor neutralization of this virus. Um, And then he kind of went through some of these treatments. And, again, we're going to belabor the H drug, hydroxychloroquine. And we did talk about this drug um, on our last podcast when we kind of went through some of these um, up-to-date studies. And this is the study we actually talked about, which makes us sound really smart. Uh, The Lancet from May 22nd, looking at the 96,000 patients showing really... 96,000. Yes, it was retrospective, but basically don't use the H drug, not even for prophylaxis, no stage of the infection. It does not help you at all. That's what he said. Mic drop. And I specifically asked the question about prophylactic uh, or using it early on in disease, and he shook his head. It was almost like he was laughing at me. Yeah, and the I didn't, stupidity of asking the question again. But I didn't ask it. I mean, I didn't write that. So no. But, but anyway, so he talked a little bit about the treatment effect with uh, lopinavir and ritonavir, the HIV drugs. Yep. Nah, no good. Don't do it. Losartan and remdesivir. Benefits. Continue to show some benefits, and, and there's ongoing studies. Didn't he talk about the U coming out with some new studies looking at both of these? Yeah, um, and so did Dr. Susie. Dr. Susie did too, but even this Losartan really looking at that whole ACE-ARB 
um, positive impact. So that's really cool. And then trial starting next week for cell-based immunotherapy, which is looking directly at those natural killer cells um, and stem cells uh, to help with treatment. So stay tuned if you get COVID or a loved one does. Don't hesitate to go look at the research that's out there, which is at, I'm going to say it, COVID, C-O-V-I-D-E-B-M dot U-M-N dot E-D-U. So check that out if you want to look at the newest studies coming out of the U. Yeah. They also, we, there were a number of questions, and he did talk about uh, congregate settings that ideally everyone should be tested if there's a positive in the building. So, what? Yeah, that's what he said. He, I, you know, and I think what he said along with that, I was joking when I said what, but yeah, he did say that. But he actually brought up the fact we didn't have to even pry or push that, you know, you might have a person who works at one nursing home, for instance, but they often work at multiple different care centers. And so if you're not testing the caregivers at nursing homes, because clearly they're not getting any visitors you're going to be potentially spreading this virus across multiple long-term care facilities, which is obviously what's been happening in our state. Yeah. So we had a wonderful talk with him. We will have him back. He was amazing, and uh, his slides were, I don't know, top-notch. Yeah, they were good. So so then we had Dr. Linda Susi from Mercy Hospital, a hospitalist and a close personal friend of myself, my own. So maybe we should get her head checked since she's been friends with you for like 50 since years. Ninth, but ninth grade. Okay, 40 years. But um, so, so we basically had a round robin of questions for her, like a gazillion questions, short period of time. It was lots of fun. I think the best part about Linda is you keep comparing me to her, and uh, that just makes me laugh. Huh. Makes me laugh. <laughs> there was two of us in one room today. And you're still living. Yeah. So anyway, so we talked a little bit about what her, what the lab, what, well, basically we wanted to know kind of what was going on and how, how things had maybe changed in the last month. And we talked a little bit about lab and, and whether we would redraw things or whether that was important. And she said that, that really, when you look at all the things that you get initially, those ferritin, CR, CRPs, D dimers, that really redrawing them. Any uh, earlier than three days. Yeah. It doesn't change what you're doing because you're really looking at, what does the patient look like? So, again, this is Minnesota common sense. Take care of patients and, you know, look at their vitals and how do they look. Whoa. Yeah, I know. But I think it's interesting, though, what labs, I mean, just looking at the ferritin CRPD dimer, you know, those are things we've been getting the whole time. You know, we meaning everybody who's taking care of COVID in the world in the last 160 days. But it was, it's to me, this list seems much more Small compared to what it was, at least initially. That was at your phone. I don't think so. Um, and she talked a little bit about how they had started using convalescent serum and remdesivir. Um, and they're actually looking into uh, something, uh, some angiogenesis thing. They're, they're involved in a blinded study from the University of Minnesota uh, that is really interesting. And actually on the way out, when you Can't weren't talk there, about it. She, no. uh, she talked about it a little bit more and how... There were patients that were convinced they'd gotten the non-placebo because they turned around so quickly. Hmm. So hopefully more to come on that little study from the U. Well, and I think one of my favorite things she was talking about was that, you know, they have all these people in the hospital. And as we keep seeing, you know, on the MDH site and all the news is that, especially in the Twin Cities where she's at, the capacity is kind of getting scary for them. Yeah. But that, 
you know, especially this last weekend, which was Memorial Day weekend, of course, getting patients out of the hospital, which you'd think is kind of the goal here, was hard. Because where do you send them? Do you send them back to the nursing home that doesn't want them because they have COVID? Or where do you send them? And she said there were some COVID-specific facilities, uh, but some of these were, you know, not accepted by all insurances. And so that was a bit of an issue. Uh, So really that's something that needs to uh, continue to be worked on. Um, She notes that uh, really, uh, again, we had a little talk about uh, the IV fluid issue and uh, how we can overload these people very easily so they're really touchy, uh, especially in these older 80 to 90-year-old patients. Um, So that could be an issue. I think she highlighted some of the things that we don't really want to talk about, of course, these end-of-life discussions, which we've had these talks on before. But some of the things she pointed out as being more significant signs is that some of these, especially the 80, 90-year-olds, she kept saying, who just don't want to eat. You can't make a person eat. And giving them a bunch of fluids is not really going to help them. Yeah. And putting in a G-tube or a feeding tube is not going to help them. And so it's it's hard to, again, have those end-of-life discussions before everybody gets COVID. Yeah. Then uh, there was a question for her about some of the odd presentations. And, and I think probably the one that she talked about most was confusion uh, that they'd had. Uh, she had one lady in particular that showed up confused from a, a congregate living who normally was uh, not confused. And uh, when she got to the hospital, actually seemed to be doing very well. And with a couple of, with just a couple of hours passing, was on 10 liters of oxygen. So a lot of times there'll be symptoms that may pre um kind of predate the the real hypoxia. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, she was taking pictures, interestingly, at the slides from um, the first speaker. And I said, why don't I just print them for you? And she's like, because I can't bring printed slides into the COVID unit. So that was interesting. Oh, interesting. She's like, I'd have to throw paper away. So anyway, but then we switched kind of over to Joe Helley and the Schick. Yeah, the state hospital... Control well, center? Yeah, something like that. But uh, basically, they are the people that are helping kind of manage all of the state response yes. to the COVID pandemic. Uh, Joe Helley and our favorite Dr. Hick, who was not there today. But really talking about, again, what do we do with patients? Like this transition thing, talking about swing beds for trying to get dispo out of the hospital, for long-term care centers, the whole idea of if you're going to spread a patient from, you know, this Hennepin County, for instance, and send them out to a different hospital because they're not as sick. What about insurance and all of these things and how much paperwork this has been? I mean, we all love prior auths. Apparently, the state finally realizes how awful it is, too. But, you know, this is one of the things they're definitely looking into. Yeah. And one of the things they've had with particular machines that are a lot of times have been outstate is this, uh, that reagents, still hard to find. So hard, you know, although um, they talked a little bit about the Mayo and the U of M earlier, uh, being able to do 20,000 tests in a day, uh, we're not really to that capacity because of some of the other issues. So. Right. And then finally, the big, the big, big point was this whole critical care coordination number, this discharge number planning. This is the number we kind of alluded to last week that they were just getting up, but it did get the go-ahead to go live this weekend. So as hospitals are filling up, we're looking at these ICU beds, looking at critical care beds. Um, there's a number to call, and there's also an intensivist. So, a, you know, pulmonary card, critical care doctor available to help, especially the outstate hospitals kind of know what to do to triage these patients. So the number to call, 
651-201-5615. The lines are open. <laughs> You've always wanted to say that. So anyway. Uh, lastly, talk, well, a couple things left. He, uh, he did uh, mention uh, something that Dr. Hick had alluded to last week, which is this N- N95 supply that was actually sent from a domestic company that failed the fit testing. You have failed. And so the, although these are still fine to use as like we would a surgical mask, they will not be used uh, for N95 situations. So uh, this may lead to, again, some more shortages. So thank God I had a wood shop and I have my own N95. So there you go. So that is it for today. Um, our first echo, COVID echo of this week, number 16. On Thursday, we will be joined by Patsy Stinchfield, who is a nurse practitioner, pediatric infectious diseases at Children's Minnesota, talking about the epidemiology infection control update at Children's, as well as having our medication treatment update with Chris Hagen, PharmD at Central Care in Long Prairie, where you can now drive up and get testing without an ER visit. In some of those places, in Long Prairie of all places, of you can just drive right up. All places. And yep. you're a horse and buggy. It's a town like 80 people. No, it's bigger than that. So anyway, but there you go. Tomorrow. And tomorrow on uh, the Opioid Echo, in case you're into that. The Charlie, Charlie Resnikoff. And he'll be talking about uh, some of the issues with uh, opioid use and music in the music industry so it's very interesting talk yeah and then we're going to be taping a bunch of podcasts with him that will be the auto-released addiction topics on tuesday so we will have a bunch of fun weeks coming up on the addiction connection actual addiction podcast yeah it's the real addiction okay band yeah (laughs) rescue us (laughs) so we will let battle legs take this over and uh, thanks again for listening we will see you again next week